Thanks for that, Jack. All right. Well, when I was at university, which to many of you probably seems like back in the 18th century, there was a Christian uni group that I was part of, and we were running a series, uh, an apologetic series called Unbelievable. And through this series, we tried to answer some of the more difficult questions that were thrown at Christianity in that time. Questions like, how can you say there's only one true religion? How can a loving God allow suffering and hell? And in preparation for this series, uh, I was given the task of creating a set of videos, uh, interviewing random students at QUT Gardens Point to get their thoughts on some of this stuff. Now, amazingly, most people that I chatted to, they were really happy to engage with me. They were happy to talk about the topics of religion, to debate about the idea of God, to talk about the concept of heaven and how to get there, and even prayer. But when I started narrowing the conversation down to the person of Jesus, the mood of the interview would noticeably shift. Things became slightly awkward. You see, the person and work of Jesus it became a divisive topic, a divisive kind of concept in the conversation. Who he claimed to be, the fact that he claimed to be the only way to heaven. These were topics that revealed the hearts of the people and indicated with the people I was chatting with where they were really at with God. And I think this is an important note to raise because in our own evangelistic efforts, this really matters. You see, as we evangelize, we can talk about uh, religion. We can even pray somewhat in public still. We can talk about God in, in general kind of generic terms. But it's not until you press into the person of Jesus, until you, you channel the discussion in to the person of Christ, that you begin to see hearts revealed. And so tonight we're going to be exploring this idea, uh, the idea that Jesus reveals hearts, and the idea that our uh, spiritual address, as it were, uh, is uncovered through what we think of the person of Jesus. And we have three examples in the passage, ranging from uh, these pagans called the Magi, we have King Herod, and finally, uh, tucked away in the passage is these religious leaders as well. And we're going to be looking at how each of them responds to the person of Jesus in their own way, and what this says about their hearts. But as we dive into this part of Matthew, how about I open up in prayer and we ask for God's help to understand what we have before us. Heavenly Father, in your grace, you have given us ears to hear. Lord, please open up our ears tonight to listen to what you really have to say in these words in Matthew 2. Lord, please give us hearts that are willing to be stretched and challenged this evening. And give us the strength we need to apply what we hear in our lives each and every day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you've got an outline, you've grabbed one from up the back. Uh, We're going to begin at point one on the outlines. That's the Magi come to worship King Jesus. So again, if, if you're new here tonight or if you've been following along in this series, you'd know that we have another classic Christmas story ahead of us. Uh, The story of the wise men, which makes up a large component of our Christmas tradition. Every nativity generally has three wise men offering their gifts to baby Jesus laying in the manger. 
And we know a lot about these guys because, well, we have songs written about them and we have little nativity scenes we can look at to kind of glean what's going on here. You know, the song We Three Kings, one of my favourites. The problem is that over the years, tradition about these guys has overtaken the facts at Ground Zero. Let me give you some examples of this. So the song We Three Kings of Orientar. It's a bit of pop trivia. Did you know that there weren't actually three kings? There were three gifts mentioned, but nowhere does it ever state that there are three kings. Yet amazingly, in church tradition around the 6th century, uh, we kind of jazzed up these three kings. We even gave them names, Melchon, Balthazar and Gaspar. Kind of useless information. Don't need to remember that because there weren't necessarily three of them. This is stuff that's been added on later to the Bible scriptures that we have before us. Nowhere in the text does it say this. In fact, the idea that these men were kings, there's another misnomer there. See, according to Matthew, these guys are magi, or put in layman's terms, wise men. They were the type of people that that worked for kings, the type of people that advised kings, but they weren't kings themselves. So this is just a, a simple public service announcement. Don't get your theology exclusively from songs you listen to, even from the songs that we sing necessarily. Uh, Don't get them from carols or other church traditions. Get your theology from the Bible, from the first source text. Yep. Cool. I think we all know this, but it's worth reiterating, especially in a passage like this. So in Matthew's Gospel, we have these magi, uh, all these wise men. Now, their role, they were basically stargazers, Uh, The term magi, it's not referring to your local two-minute noodle packets. Uh, The term magi covered a whole range of professions and skills. So things ranging from astrologers, you know, people that write up horoscopes and they read futures from the stars. Uh, They were astronomers as well. People who studied the natural sciences, they interpreted dreams. So the name magi, it's, it's very broad. And it's actually where we get our modern word for magic or magician from. There's a certain mystery about it. There's something spectacular about the way they did things. And so here in Matthew 2, we have these magi, and they've interpreted some kind of cosmic phenomenon. They've looked out the room, and they've seen this star in the sky, a bright star that's guiding them. And somehow from this, they came to the conclusion that a new king had been born. But amazingly, it's not just any king they understand this as. They understand this star as representing a king of the Jews. Now, I'm not sure how they came to that point. Feel free to throw your theories this way. Uh, But somehow they'd understood that a new king of the Jews had been born in verse 2. And later we find out that they want to come and worship this new king. Now, we should find this a little bit strange, just a little bit jarring, because these magi... They're not Jewish. Right? This, this king that has been born is not going to be their king. But for some strange reason, they're so compelled by this star that they're willing to travel a great distance, carrying a whole bunch of stuff with them to see this event and to worship this new king. Now, as the story unfolds, these magi, they end up in Jerusalem, which is the Jewish capital. Not Bethlehem. They don't end up where Jesus was actually born and where his family were staying at this point in time. They end up in Jerusalem. Now, this is a bit peculiar. 
Uh, some seem to think that perhaps they lost the star that was guiding them, and so somewhere along the way they decided, well, we're going to go to Jerusalem because that's where Jewish kings are born. That's what we're looking for here. Uh, perhaps by God's mysterious providence it disappeared. We, we don't really know. But what we do know is they ended up in Jerusalem somehow, probably on a hunch or an educated guess. Now, where they end up, they start inquiring about. They start going, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? You know, we've, we've got this thing that was guiding us, but it hasn't taken us exactly where we need to be. So they start asking around Jerusalem, where is this new king? And what this does is it gathers the attention of Israel. And it catches the attention specifically of this guy named Herod. Now, Herod, this dude, is a megalomaniac, basically a guy who's obsessed with himself and his own uh, power. He wants to gather more and more power, as much as he can get. But more to the point, he's also given the title King of the Jews. So you can probably guess how he'd react to this news that there was a new King of the Jews in town. So in a, like a, a little summary here, we have the Magi that have come to worship Jesus and this comes uh, to Herod's attention, so Herod comes onto the scene, and eventually we find out that Herod wants to kill this new king. And so this brings us to point two, if you're following along. Herod tries to kill King Jesus. Now, when I first arrived uh, on the scene here at KPC, there was some confusion, partly or mostly due to the fact that my name is Steve, but it was only heightened by the fact that this second Steve that kind of was a twin of is also just as masculine and charming. In many respects, it is kind of hard to tell us apart. In fact, if it wasn't for one being more senior, then <laughs> I guess you can tell the difference. Now, I bring this up, right? This, this is an important point because the Bible's full of Herods, right? There's, there's all these Herods you read of in the gospel, right? There's several of them. And often we, we don't really know who is who. So I thought I'd give you a quick, a quick crash tour, quick crash course of who this particular Herod is in Matthew 2. It's kind of a highlight reels of who we're dealing with. Uh, this dude, he's the one that we know of as Herod the Great. Uh, and credit where it's due, he actually did do some amazing and great things. Uh, this man, he's famous for undertaking massive, massive building projects across the country including building ports uh, and fortresses, palaces. And during the course of these things, he invented and innovated on amazing feats of engineering, many feats that he, many thought were impossible at this point in time. So his CV, it includes things like creating a type of central heating, uh, a Roman bath, which is basically like an ancient sauna where you get slaves to kind of pump steam through and you sit there enjoying your pores opening. Amazing stuff. This guy invented it 2,000 years ago or at least he innovated on what was already there. Perhaps, though, his most notable accomplishment was refurbishing and kind of expanding the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And after 70 AD, when the Romans came and absolutely obliterated this temple, uh, even today, part of the temple still stands. And it's what we know of now as the Wailing Wall, where Jews still go to pray. So if you've seen that in any documentaries or you've been there, that's part of Herod's temple. That's something he put his hands to. You see, for Herod, everything by necessity had to be grand. It had to be bigger and better. He had this, anything you can do, I can do better mentality. 
But this mindset of his, it eventually became a two-edged sword. Because today, history, it doesn't look too kindly on this man. In fact, he's perhaps, perhaps famously most known for his extreme paranoia. You see, towards the end of his life, he became so paranoid at any threats to his power that he killed anyone that got in the way. Now, this uh, included his own wife, it included his mother-in-law, and even two of his own sons. This man was wild. He became so wild and unpredictable that, that one of the Roman rulers said that he would rather be King Herod's pig than his son, because at least then he'd be safe. Now, Herod wasn't Jewish, uh, but he did adopt a lot of Jewish customs in order to please the Jewish people, and so you were safer to be his pig because he wasn't going to eat pork. Now, this man, he was eventually given this title, King of the Jews. And this is what really matters for tonight. The Roman Senate said, you are King of the Jews. And so think about this for a moment. Right? For someone who is power-hungry, someone who is paranoid about anyone who challenged his authority to the point of killing his own kids, someone who was appointed the title King of the Jews, can you imagine what this man would be thinking right now when these wise men, these magi, turn up in Jerusalem and they say, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. Knowing who Herod is, knowing what this guy is capable of, it's not hard to imagine that he was absolutely disturbed by this news. In fact, in the NIV, that's the word it uses, disturbed. And I think it's a very good word. I think it profoundly summarizes his character really, really well. It's a great description of who he was. But if you look in verse 3, it's not just Herod who's disturbed. We actually see that all of Jerusalem is disturbed along with him. Now, you'd have to hazard a bit of a guess, but I don't think it's too hard to figure out why all of Jerusalem is disturbed. Because you see, if they, they know this guy, they know this man, his extreme paranoia, they know what he does to threats to his power, they probably knew full well that this news could signal more bloodshed, which ends up happening when Herod completely loses it, when he flips his lid and he orders the killing of every boy two years old and under in Bethlehem and its surrounding regions. This man was absolutely crazy. He was a wicked man. He was an evil man. He had no troubles barking this order. And the reason he did this is because he was hoping that Jesus somehow, this new king of the Jews, would be wrapped up in the collateral of all the young boys being murdered in Bethlehem. Now, two things are worth noticing uh, out of this. Uh, first is that he kills every boy two years old and under. Okay, and this is because by this stage, Jesus would have been probably roughly between one and two years of age. So as for your nativity... Going back to kind of the, the first point I made at one, one section here, it, it portrays these wise men as giving gifts to baby Jesus, but that's not how this goes. Uh, Jesus would have been a small boy at this point, one or two years of age. Now, by the stage, uh, again, there's more to it. Joseph and Mary, they're not in a stable anymore. They're moved into a house. Uh, did you notice that in verse 11? Verse 11, it says, On coming to the house, not a barn, not a stable, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And special note here, they worshipped Jesus. 
They didn't worship Mary, his mother, or anything like that. They worshipped Jesus. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. So Jesus, he's no longer a newborn at this stage. They're living in a house. And so Jesus was probably roughly close to that two-year mark, which is where Herod gets his information from in order to try and wipe him out. Uh, The second thing worth noticing uh, is how Herod knew to send people into Bethlehem to deal with this problem. And to answer this, we need to move on to point three in the outline. The chief priests and the teachers of the law simply ignore Jesus. Now, I'm not a handyman, uh, far from it, but I have done a little bit of work around my house from time to time. And this one time, I was going through the middle section of Aldi, as we all do, and found this sink mixer. It's basically a tap that kind of has a U-shaped handle where you can rinse your dishes, kind of like in an industrial kitchen. At least it's how I think it feels. What I didn't realise, though, is that this thing had to be professionally installed. It did say it on the box, but I kind of ignored that. And I tried to do as much as I could, and I realised that the plumbing was just too hard. I needed all these specialised tools. I just couldn't do it. I needed to call in the professionals to install this thing in my house. Now, Herod, when he heard that a baby was born king of the Jews, he had to call in the professionals, right? He had to call in the big guns to find out what was actually going on here. And so in verse 4, he calls in the chief priests and the teachers of the law, basically all the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And he asks them where the Messiah was to be born. Now, these guys, they were the really big guns, These are the ones that know their scriptures inside out, back to front, and this is their job, this is their living, to know this stuff. And so without even a moment's thought, without looking this up in their concordance or searching Wikipedia, they rattle off where the Messiah is to be born, and they say in verse 4, he's to be born in Bethlehem in Judea. More than that, as they back this up with an instant quotation from Micah, they say to Herod, For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. These guys, without a second thought, were like, oh, yeah, the Messiah. Where is is he born? Oh, it's in the prophet Micah. They They just know it. They knew exactly where it was predicted. They knew exactly where to go to find it. These guys are the Bible gurus, right? They knew their stuff. And when Herod asks, they instantly deliver. But here's the curious thing about this. And for this, we need to take a quick step back for a minute. I'm going to paint a very quick picture of what's going on. You have these magi, these wise men. They've, They've come in from the east, and somehow they know that a new king of the Jews has been born. They've made their way into Jerusalem. All Jerusalem hears about this news. They're all on edge They're all holding their breath. They're all disturbed, as the NIV says, along with Herod. New king of the Jews. You know, what is this claim? Is is this true? What will Herod think of this? The whole city is alert to what's going on. And this is critical. Because, you see, you have these chief priests and these teachers of the law. They rattle off the exact scripture concerning the birthplace of Jesus No doubt they know that Jerusalem is shaking with fear at this point, and perhaps some anticipation, thinking, is is this the Messiah? Is this really true? 
And what do the chief priests and teachers of the law do after this point? Well, to be fair, we're not told. The Bible doesn't say anything. But it kind of seems like they do nothing because they just disappear from the narrative, gone. And I personally think, though this is a hunch, I personally think they probably went home, they probably patted each other on the backs for how great their Bible knowledge is, you know, still got it, nailed it, yeah, Bethlehem, we know that one. And then they kicked up their feet, cracked open a cool one and watched the Winter Olympics for the night. These men who hold the very words of God, whose job it is to know them, to anticipate the coming of their Messiah, the very oracles that speak about their Saviour, almost seems like they can't be bothered lifting a finger to see if any of the commotion is true. I mean, the least they could do is have a quick trip down to Bethlehem. If you pull up a map, you'll know how close it is to Jerusalem. It's just a short walk south. But instead, Matthew kind of makes them disappear from the narrative, just gone. You don't hear of them again. It's a very curious absence. And I think with that, it's a good time to skip to point four. Believe it or not, I'm breaking convention. Fourth point tonight. What a treat. Uh, Point four. This is where it all comes together. Uh, Jesus reveals hearts. You see, the attitude of these religious leaders, I think it's kind of a parable because it can reflect the attitude of our own Christian subcultures, right, where we use metrics for Christian health like how much are you reading your Bible, how much... Are you praying? How knowledgeable are you about the Scriptures? How often do you go to church? How regularly? And all of these are good things, and dare I say, they can reveal something of what's going on inside the heart. But I think it needs to be stressed that we shouldn't be impressed by someone who can simply rattle off answers to deep theological questions. None of us should be impressed by someone that knows their way around the Bible like the back of their hand. And rather, what we should be impressed by is the one that knows these words and then lives them out in their lives, right? The one who is obedient to these words. And perhaps I think this needs to be stressed, especially in our case, because you guys have the privilege of having four ministers here at church, two students, an assistant, and a senior. So don't sit in awe of knowledge that we may possess. Don't sit thinking, wow, we know so much, therefore we must be godly people. Rather, I think where admiration should come from is if you see someone who knows the word and then lives it out in their lives. It's a small detail. Uh, It's easy to miss, but if you skip down to verse 14 in your Bibles, you'll see Joseph, to some degree, is a bit of an example of this. Because he's warned to flee Beth- to Bethlehem, sorry, warned to flee from Bethlehem into Egypt, and he gets up, and the text says he he left in the middle of the night. And I think Matthew includes that to show this man gives instant and full obedience to the word of God. It's kind of in contrast to what we sort of see of in these religious leaders. So first, don't just fill your head with a knowledge of the word. It is important to do, and I encourage you to do it. But don't do that and think your task is done. Rather, submit yourselves in obedience to it as well. Uh, The second thing I want to highlight from this passage is if we move on to Herod. So if you've lived in this world at all, then you'll know that uh, the world hates Jesus 
and a lot of the world just wants to stamp him out. They think if Jesus was just eradicated from society, then we'd all get along far better. You know, if we just got rid of the church or we, we taxed it to the point where it was no longer sustainable or whatever it is, if we just got all the Bibles and just put them in a big pile and burned them, then the world would be better off. If we just got, got rid of religious instruction in schools, things would be so much better. Then we'd live in this post-Christian, post-religious utopia. And I think we do see this. I mean, we, we see it with our eye. I think it's, it's hanging by a thread, and every minute we get to do it, we probably should be doing it. But in many subtle and different ways, we see this. So last, last Christmas, for example, uh, when I was shopping, someone had pointed out to me that the shops, at least where I was around Mount Omini, they no longer play Christmas carols. Right? When I say carols, I mean songs about the meaning of Christmas, as we think as Christians. Right? They're all just gone. And it was funny because I didn't believe this. I was like, no, nah, no, they still play carols. I think I hear them every now and then. And for the next couple of weeks, I was listening and listening. And at least Mount Omni shops didn't play a single carol. I couldn't believe my ears. You could count Michael Bublé maybe as carols and Mariah Carey, but, but there were no traditional carols at all. Jesus is being stamped out of our society quickly and deliberately and in many ways, and many of them are extraordinarily subtle, and yet I think they're actually profoundly destructive. Just like Herod, you'll find that there are many who simply want to stamp Jesus out wherever they find him, completely. And finally, when we talk about uh, Jesus revealing hearts, I want to bring us back to the very beginning, uh, to the Magi. Now, these guys, remember, they weren't Jews. They didn't have the promises given to them, they probably didn't have the Jewish scriptures unless someone had specifically given it to them. Maybe they did. Perhaps this is why they knew uh, there was this star represented a Jewish king. Yet these guys, they sought after Jesus, wanting to genuinely find out more. These guys, they were overjoyed in verse 10 when they found the star which led them to Jesus. And they laid their gifts at his feet as they bowed and worshipped him. Now, I think this is another small detail, once again. But uh, after they go from Herod, where he finds out that they're based in Bethlehem, they go out and worship Jesus. In verse 12, we're told that they return to their country by another route. And I think this is a, a great little detail here. It's a bit of a parable uh, in some ways about how an encounter with Jesus... Uh, it actually changes you. That there's no one who encounters Jesus and goes away the same way which they came. These wise men, they show us as Christians whether we've been a follower of Jesus our whole lives or whether we've just committed ourselves recently. They show us that all of us who profess to have a faith need to keep our awe and our wonder for the person of Jesus that we must as Christians be the first of anyone to press in more and more and to want to know him more and more, to sit in admiration, to sit in wonder at the King of Kings. Now, if you feel distant from Jesus, we do go through seasons like this from time to time. Whether you've done that or whether you've accepted him with joy, whether you've accepted him and then feel like you're now stagnating in your maturity. 
Perhaps a good step forward would be to take a small leaf out of the Magi handbook and sit in wonder at who this man really is. So as we finish up today, I think the best thing I can do right now after all this is pray and ask for God's help to help us do this, to help us sit under him in awe this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, will we admit that sometimes we just don't know where to begin when it comes to regaining our awe of you and what you've done for us in Jesus. Please send your spirit to help us to hunger once again for your word. Help us like these wise men to consider you worthy of our treasures and worthy of our worship. Lord, use us to spur one another on to an amazement, to a genuine wonder for who you are and what you've done for us. Please help us wherever we're at in our walks, whether we don't yet believe, whether we've stagnated or are joyously charting the course. Help us wherever we're at to sit in amazement and give us a desire to thirst more for the person of Christ this week. And it's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.